22. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he'll bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Is this on, Josh? Okay, so here's the situation. In Israel, everything <coughs> is a mess, isn't it? It's what we've been seeing. Everything's gone wrong. Um, it seems that um, all of God's promises have failed. Um, they've failed in their task and as a servant to bring God's blessing to the nations. Um, they've, they've not obeyed his word. They've rejected him again and again. Um, and um, the, the land is ruined um, as a people and they're ripped apart by greed and self-interest the poor are exploited and they're being uh, attacked by enemy nations and, and we know now that they're going to be um, invaded um, and carried off um, and, and not just by anybody uh, but by the Babylonian Empire so the biggest empire um, in the whole world and the superpower um, of, the, of, of the, the, the Near East um, Things are bad. And the land is going to be decimated. And the temple, um, which was the centre of their worship, the national pride, um, is going to be looted um, and burned down. And the people are going to just be, be carried off. The kings um, and all the important people and, and, and most of um, the population of the land. Um, and so those, those huge questions that we said before, they're, they're rattling around our heads, um, rattling around the heads of the... Oh, no. There we go. So have, where is it? There we go. So have God's promises failed? Can God save his people? Does he still want to save his people? How can he make them his faithful servant again? What can he do about his people's sin? Um, and we've seen, uh, when we get to um, chapter 42, that God has promised that he's, he's going to do it, that he's going to sort things out. He's going to sort things out for his people. Although they're going into exile, although everything seems to be lost, he's going to sorted out. He's going to save his people. Um, he wants to save his people. He loves his people. He's going to deal with their sin. He's going to bring them forgiveness. He's going to restore them to all that they were meant to be and more. But our big question is, well, how? How on earth 
is he going to do it? How can he reverse the fortunes of this people? And so we think, well, maybe at the end of chapter 40, we've been, we read it on, on Wednesday together, you think, well, maybe God's going to send a mighty conqueror. He's going to send a, an invading force, better, bigger, more, more scary than, than, than Babylon's. He's going to drive them out. He's going to smash the nations around him. He's going to set up his kingdom forever. We think maybe that is how he's going to do it. Or maybe he'll do it with, with a supernatural force. So he'll just send, like he did, like he drove back the Red Sea. He's going to send a, 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 do something incredible, supernatural. He's going to reach down with thunderbolts and, and beat these nations out. But the problem with that is he could do it, but he wouldn't deal with that problem, would he? He wouldn't deal with the problem of his people's rebellion. You see, none of those things will do. There's only one way God can save his people. And that is through a faithful, tender, loving, self-giving servant who he promises to send. And we're going to see this servant uh, again and again as we go through these, these chapters, Isaiah 40 um, to 45. And, we're going to, and, and, and Isaiah builds in, in each of the four songs that Isaiah uh, gives us about him. It builds in detail. Um, build in, in, in how graphic he is about this servant and all he's going to come and all he's going to do. But here in chapter 42, what we're looking at today, um, he makes his first um, appearance. And we've got five things um, to see about him. And you've got to concentrate, okay, these five things because I'm going to get you to do some work in the second half um, of this bit. So you need to listen, okay? You, know, you do need to listen every week because this is God's word. Um, what we're looking at in here. So you need to listen every week, but you need to listen especially today because if you don't, then um, you'll struggle in the second half. So we've got five things um, to see about this um, servant. Um, and God um, uh, gave Isaiah this prophecy because he had five things that he wanted God's people about to go into exile to see about these serv- this servant. And, and really these five things, they were meant, I think, to stir the passions of his people. Um, of these people facing judgment. Um, and there are five things, actually, that should stir our passions even more because we've seen the one who Isaiah is talking about in all of his beauty and loveliness. So let's look. Five things. Five things about this um, servant. And the first thing is this. This servant is going to be a spirit-filled servant. Just look at that in verse, verse 1. Page 727. Don't take my word for it. Look at it there. Here is my servant, God says. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. See, this servant that God's going to send is going to be filled with God's spirit. Um, God says he's going to be my, my chosen one. The one uh, uh, in whom I delight. The chosen one in whom I delight. Israel had failed. God was displeased with Israel. But, Israel, but God says, I'm going to send a servant. I'm going to send a servant who I'm pleased with. Who I delight in. Who my soul loves. And I'm going to put my spirit on him. I'm going to empower him to do the work that I've sent him to do. 
He's going to be filled with God's Spirit. What is going to mark out this servant? What we're going to notice about him is that he will be somebody who will just be overflowing with God's Spirit. I will put my Spirit on him, God says. But what is the work going to be that this, spirit, that this servant is going to be sent to do? Well, here's what it is. The work he's going to do is he's going to be a world-sorting servant. He's going to be somebody who makes the world... That's number two, yeah. He's going to make the world the way it should be. Just look at at the end of verse one. He will bring justice to the nations, says God. Now the word, um, uh, the Hebrew word translated justice here is is a word called, it's called mishpat. I don't know how you pronounce it, but we'll go with mishpat because it sounds sounds a bit funny as well. Mishpat. And it does mean a lot of the things that we talk about when we talk about justice. So it means um, a fairness and, and um, uh, uh, evil being punished and, and right being done and all, all that sort of stuff when we talk about justice. It, it does mean all those things. But the Hebrew word means much, much more than that. Because when the Bible talks about mishpat or, or justice, it means the world being put back the way that it was supposed to be. So it means everything that happens in a society, in a world where God is ruling over it, where God is king over it. So it means wrongs being righted. It means injustice being dealt with. It means slaves being set free. It means sickness being banished. It means um, the world being brought back into order, being brought back the way that it should be. And there's a lot of talk in in our press at the moment, isn't there, as we approach the general election, uh, of um, our broken society. Have you, have you heard that? Um, David Cameron, it's one of his things, our broken society. Um, don't worry, this isn't going to be a political... Um, um, you're not going to find out what I think about politics here. Uh, but um, um, he talks about this broken society, a society where nothing works, where families are, are, are ripped apart, where, 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 where things have just gone wrong. Well, justice, biblical justice, is the opposite of that, of this broken society. It means a world where where God (coughs) rules by his good and perfect word and where everything is just as it should be. And Isaiah's telling us, God is telling us, that this is what this king is going to bring. And not just for Israel, but for the whole world. He'll bring justice to the nations, he said. So verse 1, he'll bring justice to the nations. Verse 3, Uh, In faithfulness, he'll bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. This servant is going to bring about a world where everything is just the way that it should be, where God rules by his word. And what will that be like? What will it it look like? What will a world look like where God (coughs) rules, where the the world is the way that it should be? Well, just look at verses 6 and 7. God um, is speaking directly to this servant here. Um, He's he's, he's addressing him and he says this, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I'll take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. See, God ruling, God's justice coming in, this servant ruling is going to mean the eyes of the blind being opened. It's going to mean those in captivity being released. It's going to mean those in darkness being brought 
into God's glorious light. See, we live in a world full of darkness, don't we? We live in a world, um, you just have to open a newspaper, you just have to turn on the news. We live in a world uh, of darkness. We live in a world of beauty, of, of wonderful things to celebrate. But we also live in a world of darkness, don't we? A world where, where children are enslaved and exploited and, and murdered. A world where families um, fall apart. A world where um, uh, earthquakes rip through. Uh, whole countries, a world where um, after earthquakes rip through and natural disasters come, people um, exploit the poor and the vulnerable by looting them. We live in a world which is not the way that it should be, which is full of darkness. And Romans chapter 1 tells us that because we've rejected God as the lords of our lives, our foolish hearts have become darkened. That's what Paul says. We've become people who, who can no longer see the way we should be able to see. We, 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 we're turned in on ourselves. We're people who, uh, who, who struggle to see that God really is the king. We're people who, who've, who've become enslaved in this idea that the world actually is all about us. And so we see a world that's ripped apart by selfishness and greed, don't we? People enslaved to their jobs. People enslaved to pornography. Families ripped apart by division and greed, illness and, and sickness, death and destruction. We see all around us. We live in a world that's far from what it should be. A world full of darkness. And, and that's the world that the Israelites lived in. A world which had been ripped apart by human rebellion against God. Where people were in darkness. Where they, where they, where they try as they might, they, they struggled to obey God. They struggled to see who he was. And you see, Israel was supposed to be a light in the middle of that darkness. They, they were supposed to be um, like um, uh, people who would live under God's rule and would spread the, this light to banish the darkness in, in the nations around them. But they just become part of the darkness too. A nation ripped apart by greed, greed and um, enslaved and all those things. And that's what's so great here. See, God is promising a new servant. And this servant will bring light. In the power of God's spirit, empowered with the spirit on him, he's going to banish the darkness. He's going to bring people out of slavery, out of captivity, out of their sin, out of their blindness and into God's glorious light. He's going to establish a new world order where there's no more darkness where God reigns, where people know God, where people delight in him, and where things are just as they should be, where people live once more under God's good and gracious rule. The question is, how is he going to do that? Because you'd expect somebody who was going to bring in a whole new world order, you'd expect him to do it, and this is how it happens normally, isn't it? By beating the last world order, so by, by smashing apart uh, armies. That's what happens in revolution. So we think, well, th this servant, surely what he's going to do is, we get to the end of verse 1, he's going to bring justice to the nations. We think, well, he's going to smash the enemies of God. He's going to smash the Babylonians. That's what's going to happen. So if you look at um, our, our world at the moment, um, what are the Tories trying to do? And again, this isn't a political uh, statement on my part, but just an observation. What are the Tories trying to do? <coughs> they want to bring in a whole new world order to, to Britain. So what are they doing? They're trying to, trying to do the dirty on Labour, trying to beat Labour down, um, mudsling at them. 
and, and, and they're shouting about how great they are, aren't they? They're telling everybody, we're the ones who've got all of the answers. So is that what this servant's going to do? Well, this servant couldn't be any more different. There's a third thing to see. This servant is going to be a gentle, tender servant. Just look at this in, in verses 2 to 3. This is just wonderful. This servant will not shout or cry out <clears throat> or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff, snuff out. See, this servant will bring in a new world order, will put things right, but he's going to do it gently and tenderly. Just look at verse 2 again. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. See, this servant isn't going to be somebody who flaunts himself, who comes and says, look how great I am. He won't be shouting about that. This is a servant who is going to come and be humble and gentle. He's going to be somebody who binds up the weak, who finds people with wounds and tenderly cares for them, who finds the victims of injustice and loves them and includes them, who binds up their wounds. Just look at that in verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he won't snuff out. See, this servant is going to care for the weak. It's just lovely imagery, isn't it? Imagine um, a, a plant um, in a garden, and it's been, uh, it's been damaged by the wind or by uh, Zach or, or someone. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it, some of the flowers uh, are missing from it, and there's, it's kind of looking all crooked and like it's going to fall over. Well, an impatient gardener, it might be tempted just to snap off that plant, just to, to trample it into the ground, uproot it, get rid of it, so you can focus on the strong ones. But not this servant that God's describing. See, this servant... He'll take this tender plant and he's going to care for it. He's going to uh, bind it up. He's going he's to um, take a stick and he's going to tie it to the stick so that it grows strong, so that it flourishes again. So this, this plant, which looked like it was going to die, becomes the plant that it was always meant to be. And that is what this servant is going to be like, this servant that God's going to send. That's how he's going to sort the world out, not by um, a show of power or by trampling over the weak, but by tenderly caring for them, by bringing them to flourish. He's going to be a conqueror like no other. But when we read that, we might think, well, is he a bit girly? Is this servant going to be just a bit of a wimp? You know, he's not going to break up the bruise. He's going to be a bit namby-pamby. He's going to be one of those people, those men who likes wearing flowers. Is he going to be that, that sort of thing? Well, no. This servant isn't going to be weak and incapable himself. This servant is going to be a strong and faithful servant. Just look at that in verse, verse 3. A strong, faithful servant. Second part of verse 3. In faithfulness, he'll bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. See, he will not falter. 
He will not be discouraged. He won't be set off from this course that he has of bringing this new world order in. He won't be a bruised reed or a smouldering wick. He will be strong and firm. He's going to do the job that he came to do. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. See, people promise things all the time, don't they? Uh, Tony Blair made great promises about um, changing the face of Britain. Uh, people down the ages in political regimes have promised great things of, uh, of changing the face of the earth, of bringing in a new world order. But none of them have managed it. They've all faltered. They've all failed in this task. Uh, and Israel had faltered. They'd failed. They'd not been this servant. They'd been discouraged. They'd been crushed. They'd been broken. But God says, this servant will not fail. He will persevere right to the end. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes, he's going to do it. He's going to do everything that God's failed servant Israel was supposed to do. He's going to stand in their place And that brings us to our fifth and final thing to see about this servant. He's going to be a peacemaking servant. Just look at verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I'll take hold of your hand. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. I will make you a covenant for the people, God says. What does that mean? I will make you a covenant for the people. Well, a covenant um, is an agreement. Um, So it's a pact. It's it's like a a marriage. Um, So two uh, people or two groups saying that they're going to be committed to one another. They belong together. It's an agreement, peace between two people. And God had made a covenant with the people of Israel. Um, And his covenant was this, if you will walk in my ways, then I will be your God and you will be my people. And the Bible describes it in in the most graphic um, of terms. It it, it was a covenant of love. And so God was was the bridegroom uh, and uh, Israel was the bride. This, This beautiful covenant that God had made with his people, that they would be his people, he would be their God. But the problem was that Israel, Isaac, The problem was that Israel had broken her vows. She'd been faithless. She'd she'd committed adultery. That's the way the Bible describes it with the nations around. That's the way Isaiah and the other prophets, so they say, you've committed adultery. Come back to your husband. Come back to God. But she'd committed adultery again and again and again. And this exile that they went into, it was like a a divorce. It was like God saying to his people, you're not my people anymore. This is it, it's over, it's finished between us. The covenant was broken. You've been carri- they've been carried off into Babylon. But now, God's saying that this servant, he is going to be a new covenant between God and his people. He's going to bring them back into the marriage. God still wanted them to be his people. He still wanted them to come back and be restored to this beautiful relationship. And so this servant 
is going to be a covenant for the people. Uh, and notice that he doesn't say, I'm going to make a new covenant. He's going to make a new covenant. He says he's going to be a new covenant himself. He's going to be a covenant. What does that mean? He's going to be a covenant. Well, we'll see that in the weeks to come. But the glorious message here is that this servant has come to bring his people back to the marriage bed with God, to this intimate, passionate, glorious, intense relationship and to bring them back to being a blessing to the nations because he says, I'll make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. See, their job, wasn't it? Their job, they were to be this servant, to bring God's good news to the nation so the whole world would see how good God was. Well, at last, through this humble, gentle, tender, justice-bringing, reconciling, peacemaking servant, the whole world would see God's glory and people from every nation would come flooding in. So let's go back to those questions that we started with. Have God's promises failed? Well, this passage says no. God's going to keep his promises to his people for his world through this servant, through this self-giving, tender, loving servant. Can God save his people? Does God want to save his people? Well, he does through this servant who's going to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles. How can he make them his faithful people, his faithful servant again? Well, by sending this servant to do everything that they were supposed to do and to restore them. And what can he do about his people's sin? Well, somehow, somehow he's going to deal with his people's sin through this servant. He's going to bring them back. He's going to make peace between them and God. It's just wonderful. Just great news. But it's even better news for us today. Sorry, I'm just missing some notes here. Excuse me. I want. <coughs> Have you? Might be. No, no, no. Okay, well that's fine. We can uh, we can improvise. Hey. Um, so this was great news for his people. Um, great news that he was going to deal with. He was going to deal with all these these things. But it's even better news for us today, because we've seen the one who Isaiah was promising. We live in a time when this person, this servant who Isaiah was promising, has come. Because I hope as we were, were going through um, all of those things uh, about this servant, this spirit-filled servant, this world-sorting servant, this gentle, tender servant, this strong, faithful servant, this peacemaking servant, I hope you began to see that this servant could be nobody other than Jesus. And that's what the New Testament tells us, that this servant that Isaiah promised 700 years before was Jesus Christ, that descendant of David. Let's have a look. You see, who was God's 
spirit-filled servant? You can answer that question. It's an easy question. It was Jesus. Jesus was God's spirit-filled servant. Where in Mark's gospel have we seen this? Because one of the things I want us to, I want us to get um, as we look at this servant um, over these next few, few weeks is that uh, for Mark, he sees Jesus as the fulfilment of all of these prophecies, all of these promises um, in Isaiah. Mark um, quotes Isaiah, he uses Isaiah all over the place to show us that Jesus is this servant. So where in Mark have we seen that Jesus is God's spirit-filled servant? Okay, chapter 1, verse 10. Anybody else get that? So chapter 1, verse 10. Jesus is being baptised by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, torn open like, um, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Just look back um, at verse 1 um, um, of um, Isaiah chapter 42, here is my servant who my, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. God says, you are my chosen one whom I delight, who I'm pleased with. He was displeased with Israel. They hadn't been what they should be. But here is one who God is pleased with, who God delights in. And he says, in Isaiah, I'll put my spirit on him. And what happens in Mark? Jesus, the spirit descends on him like a dove. And we saw in chapter 3 um, that it's by the spirit of God that Jesus drives out demons. Jesus is full to overflowing and with God's spirit. Um, who is God's world-sorting servant? Easy question. Jesus. Yeah. Where does Mark show us that Jesus is God's world-sorting servant, come to bring this new world order, this justice, put the world right the way it was supposed to be. Where do we see Jesus doing that in Mark's gospel? Bringing in God's kingdom, that's right, yeah. That place where God rules. Yeah. Can you give any examples? Yep. Yep. Yep, so um, Simon's mother-in-law, um, she's got a fever. Uh, we saw this, didn't she? She's in danger of, of dying. They don't have antibiotics in those days. Jesus comes and he restores her to his family, just, uh, just takes her by the hand and she gets up. We live in a world which is far from the way it should be. Jesus comes and he shows us a glimpse of a world that is the way that it should be. He restores her to, his, to her family. Anything else? Any other things? It just—I mean—it's all the way through Mark, so you could pick pretty much anything. But pick something. Go on. He calms the sea. He calms the sea. So the sea is um, a, a symbol of, of chaos, um, of, of of a world that's disordered. The disciples, their their lives are threatened. Jesus comes and he just calms the storm. He gets rid of chaos. He gets rid of evil. And he makes the world the way it should be. He brings peace. Anything else? I've got one foot on the world. Raises Jairus' daughter. Raises Jairus' daughter. So this, this girl um, 
uh, we'll see it um, in a couple of, uh, in a few weeks. Um, this girl has died and Jesus brings her back to life. See, death isn't supposed to be. We weren't made to die. We were made to live and to know God. And Jesus can beat death just with a, a word. He says, little girl, I say to you, get up. And death has to shrink away. See, Jesus is the one who can bring in God's new world. And, we, and, and in Jesus being here, we get it, we, um, walking on the earth, we get a glimpse of this new world order where death is banished, where sickness is got rid of, where lepers are brought in, where, where those who were, who, were, who were banished from society are brought back in. Jesus has the power to bring in God's new world. He doesn't do it in the end because he's got a, a bigger job to do that's to do with dealing with sin. But one day he's going to return. The Bible tells us, and he's going to bring in this new world order. He's shown us that he's got the power to do it. One day he's going to come back and bring it in. Um, who was the gentle, tender servant? Jesus. <laughs> Wonderfully. Where do we see that in Mark? Where he heals the leper. Oh, it's, just a, it's just a beautiful moment, isn't it? Just look with me. Um, Mark chapter 1, verses 40 and 41. A man with leprosy came to him. Leprosy, um, uh, skin conditions, they, they meant you, you, were, you were excluded from the, the community. You couldn't go near people. You couldn't come near to God. God shows up in Jesus. Uh, and this guy comes to him and he begs him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Mark, Mark tells us, filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. If, if you touched a leper, that meant that you were unclean in the <laughs> eyes of the people and in the eyes of God. And Jesus is willing to take the shame of his society, this, this servant. He doesn't come to lord it over people. He comes to love and restore. And Mark tells us immediately... The leprosy left him and he was cured. Rather than Jesus getting the, lepre, um, the leper's uncleanness, Jesus gives the leprosy his righteousness. He brings him back into relationship with God. He doesn't break a bruised reed. He doesn't snuff out a smouldering wick, but he binds up the brokenhearted. It's just lovely, isn't it? And that's what he does all the way through Mark's gospel. And that bit, that wonderful bit where the young ruler comes up to him and, and this arrogant young man who, who, who thinks that he can keep all of God's laws says to Jesus, oh, I've, I've done all of those commandments. I'm, I'm all right, I'm good. And, and Mark tells us Jesus looked, you'd think he'd say, Jesus would say, you, you know, get, get away from me, you, you arrogant young thing who think you're great. And Mark tells us Jesus looked at him and loved him. That's what he came to do, to bind up the brokenhearted, to love, to bring people back into relationship with God, to, to save and, and heal the weak. But he was also God's strong and faithful servant, the one who didn't falter, who wasn't discouraged, who wasn't um, crushed. Where, where do we see that in Mark's gospel? He went to the cross. No, that's fine, Lord. that's fine, that's no, all right. It's an open question. He went to the cross. Well, how does that show us that he didn't falter? Well, like in Gethsemane, he sort of appears to falter, but actually he is trusting in God. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is. Yeah. 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 In the, in this moment of, of of agony, as Jesus knows he's going to have to go and take the the sin of his people on him, as as other gospels tell us that that he, he Luke tells us he he, um, he he sweated blood. And yet he said, "Father, not my will, but yours." He didn't falter. He wasn't discouraged. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus tells us three times in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, and the end of chapter 10, or four times, he says, I've come to die. I'm going to Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem now. We're going up there so that I can die. And all the people around him, they're terrified. They're they're, they're thinking, Lord, you can't do this. Peter says to him, Lord, he rebukes him. He says, this can't be, the, this can't be it. You're God's, God's king. Don't, you can't be doing this. And Jesus says, no, this is what I've come to do. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. This was a king who would not falter, a servant who would go right to the end to establish God's kingdom, to bring people into God's kingdom, to pay for their sin. And we saw it. We saw his power, his strength against the storm. We saw his faithfulness against the devil in the wilderness. We see his, his tenacity and, 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 and willingness to, to, to do it in the way that he, he, he won't just kind of play to the crowd, but he goes on to preach to the other villages because he's come not for himself, but he's come to do this thing. And he won't falter. He won't be discouraged. He is the faithful servant right to the end. And finally, um, the peacemaking servant. Where do we see that in Mark's Gospel? Chapter 14. Yeah, chapter 14. And this is the uh, covenant in my blood. Yeah. Hmm. Well, they're ready. Yep, so chapter 14, verse 24, Jesus says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And we're going to see that uh, more in the weeks to come with this for many thing. Jesus says earlier in Mark's Gospel, um, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. I came to be the servant and to give my life as a ransom for many. And that's a direct quote from uh, later on in one of the other servant songs. But Jesus is saying here, my blood is the new covenant, is the new agreement between (coughs) God and people. My blood is the way you're going to be brought back into this marriage relationship, into this relationship with God. This is the way I'm going to deal with your sin. We're going to be seeing over the weeks to come um, we're going to be seeing much, much more about this servant. And um, I, my prayer is that it really does just kind of excite our hearts as we do it. About We're going to be seeing how, um, how he deals with his people's sin, how he's a blessing to the nations, how he does the job that Israel were going to do so he can restore them, so he can make people from every nation, us here today, God's people. But surely we, we can't read these words of, of Isaiah um, and, and, and look into this without seeing just two things, two extraordinary things about uh, the God of the Bible, the, the God of Israel. And the first is, is just this, that God is God. 
Just look um, at those last two verses of um, Isaiah 42, um, verses um, 8 and 9, not, not the end of the chapter, but the end of the bit that we're looking at. Here's what God says. He says, I'm going to send you this servant. And then he says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. What he's saying is this. I'm going to send you this servant. I'm telling you about it in advance so that you will see that I am the Lord. I'm telling you about it beforehand. I'm telling you new things so you'll see that I am God. So you'll see that the gods of these nations, they're not God. They're idols. They're worthless, but I'm God. Just flick on to, to, verse, uh, to chapter 44 and verse 6. This is great. God is saying, look, I'm going to do these things, and this shows I am the God. This is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, chapter 44, verse 6. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. See, God's point is this. Nobody except for the God of history, the God of the world, the God who is God, who is ruling, could possibly tell us 700 years in advance what is going to happen, could make promises like this and then keep them. God's point is this. He's saying, I am real. I'm not some made-up God like the gods of the nations I'm real. I'm the God who controls history. You see, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, he's not some made-up God who can't really do anything, who people just like to to make up because it makes them feel nice. This is the God of history who knows the beginning, who knows the end. This is the God who knows the future and who's got time itself in his hands. See, in that time of crisis for Israel, that's what he wanted them to see. He wanted to see them, them to see that he was in charge. That's what he wants us to see today. This God isn't a nice idea. He's real. He rules over history. He promises things hundreds of years in advance, and then he does them because he's God. And how do we know? Well, because of Jesus. Because through Jesus, God fulfilled all those prophecies that he promised so long in advance. This is God. See, if we're Christians, that should just excite us, shouldn't it? This God is in charge of history. He is the Lord. He is in charge over every aspect of everything. If God can promise something 700 years in advance and then do it, well, God's in charge over every aspect of my life, isn't he? I don't need to fear. I don't need to be afraid. He's in charge. He's ruling. And if, if we're not Christians, if, if we're not following this God, if we, if we think that he's just something that Christians make up, well, how do you explain this? How do you explain his ability to promise things and then do them? 
See, God's point is this. God says, no one else is like me. No one else can do this. See, this is a call to worship. It's a call to fall on our knees and say, Lord, the things I've been trusting in, the things I've been building my life on, they can't do anything. They can't predict what happens next week. But you're the one who's in charge. You're the one who's in charge of history. If we're believers, it should just give us great confidence as we talk to our friends, shouldn't it? We've been seeing in the last few weeks how this message we have to speak about Jesus is powerful, that it's wonderful, that it's going to bear fruit. Well, this should give us even more confidence, shouldn't it? Because <laughs> this Jesus we speak of, he wasn't just a flash in the pan. This, he is the fulfilment of all of God's promises for history. We've got the proof, we've got the evidence there in the Bible. But the second thing we've got to see about God from this part of the scripture, uh, this part of scripture from Isaiah is this, and that is just that God is gracious, that God is lovely and beautiful. You see, it turns out that this servant, Jesus, is none other than God himself, God the Son. And as you look at Jesus, as you read about him here, as you look at him in Mark, well, doesn't it just make your heart want to sing? Doesn't it make you want to dance? You see, the God of history, the God who's ruling over everything, he's not some tyrant God who turns up and smashes and destroys, who, who treads on the weak and treats people like they're flies or little puppets on strings. When he turns up, he turns up as a servant king who binds up the brokenhearted, who washes his disciples' feet uh, who, 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 who includes lepers, who reaches out and brings them in, who, who, who goes to widows and raises uh, their sons so that they'll be restored to them, who, who doesn't reject those in, in the captivity of Satan, the demon-possessed men, but he brings them out of demon possession. He brings them to their right mind, as we're going to see wonderfully in, in, in Legion later on. This is a king who, who wouldn't break a bruised reed, but in the end was broken and crushed <laughs> himself. A king who, 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 a servant king who wouldn't snuff out a smouldering wick, but yet himself was snuffed out. A king who didn't shout or cry out as he was dragged off by the prisoners, who didn't scream as a crown of thorns was put on his head, as a cloak was put around him, as he was beaten and whipped. He didn't cry out except to say, Father, forgive them. Who, as he was put on the cross, as he was taunted and tormented, and they said, if you're the king of Israel, save yourself and come down. He didn't shout. He didn't shout back at them. But he stayed there on the cross so that he could reconcile us to God, so he could bear all of the sins of his people, so he could deal with sin, with his problems, so he could pay their punishment in their place, so that we, we sinners, can be at peace with God, can be his people, so that people from every nation can know him. See, we're going to be going deeper into this king over the weeks to come. We're going to be seeing just with what detail God promised this king, this servant. We're going to be seeing the glory of what he did 
when he came to die on the cross, as Isaiah showed at 700 years in advance. But will you pray with me? Pray that over the next weeks, as we look at this king, pray that our hearts will just love him more. Pray that we'll just be moved by this king, by this servant. Pray that all the other things that we run after, sin and all those things, will start to just become horrible to us, will seem stupid to us because we love Jesus so much. Pray that he'll take hold in our hearts, in our community. Pray that as we gaze at him, that we'll just want to go and speak about him. Because that's what I want to do now. I want to go and tell everybody about this beautiful servant, this Lord of history. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we can speak to you now. This you, this servant who was promised from years before, who came and loved us, who came and gave yourself for us, who came and bound up the brokenhearted, who came to save us sinners so we could be your people. We worship you. We praise you because you're so lovely. And we ask that, Lord, our hearts might be full of you. We ask that um, in the weeks to come, as we read about you, as we study you, as we speak about you together, uh, might our hearts be set on fire for you. I pray that we would be moved to love and serve the way that you served us. Uh, that um, we would be moved to speak about you uh, to those who don't know you, to the brokenhearted uh, in our town uh, and in um, our nation uh, all around here. Lord, we ask that um, many people would come to see that this servant is the king and that you are the Lord of history. Um, that you would bring many people to see their sin uh, and to put their trust in this saving servant. And we thank you that you're coming back to bring in this new world order of justice and peace. And we long for that day. Amen. <coughs>